Welcome to the Noel Castler Podcast, episode 19. I'm back here with my main man, Jimmy Kennedy, to break down the week's events and try to make y'all laugh a little bit. Jimmy, how you doing this fine day? I'm great, Noel. How are you feeling, man? I can't complain. You know, the rain, <laughs> the rain stopped, the biblical floods that we've been getting in New York City for the last 24 hours. So we got a little break in them. They're supposed to go for the next 10 days or so. And I don't know if you saw those videos on Twitter yesterday of the subway platforms and the subway yeah. stairs getting flooded. Pretty scary stuff, huh? Yeah, I think you're going to need uh, diving equipment just to get to the subway <laughs> at some point, man. It seemed to be filling up the, the stairways. You know, it's leaking up that far. Shows that our infrastructure is crumbling. Like it's, it's in front of our eyes and we got to fix it. Yeah. yeah, and it also shows you who is paying the biggest price. You know, that subway you mentioned, that's at 157th Street on the Upper West Side, right? So, yeah. you know, a lot of people, I, I retweeted the, the woman who originally posted it. And a lot of people are like, oh, hell no, I'm not getting in that water for anything. And you saw those people hopping in that water, trying to use trash bags and stuff. Why? Because they couldn't afford to be late for work. They couldn't afford to not pick up their kids at daycare. You know, they didn't have the luxury of just hopping in Uber and spending 70 bucks to get to wherever they were going. You know, lower income neighborhoods rely on public transportation and infrastructure. They don't have as many options. And that's the backbone of our economy. We learned that last year in the pandemic. Essential workers, we really learned what we were taking for granted and how our society grinds to a halt without these people and poor neighborhoods, you know, poor neighborhoods probably isn't the best term, but neighborhoods that have been neglected, especially in New York City, the, the biggest environmental catastrophes are always in the South Bronx. It's where the guy who designed New York City was a guy named Robert Moses, and he was an open racist, and he basically put all the freeways and stuff through the poor minority neighborhoods because he was keeping everything nice and park-like for the wealthy white people, you know? And mm -hmm. it's great if you live on the Upper East Side. It sucks if you live in Hunts Point, and your child is going to grow up with asthma 10 times more likely than if your kid grew up on the Upper East Side, though everywhere is basically really polluted now. I mean, it's really reaching a critical mass, but my point in all this is we need an infrastructure bill. We need a Green New Deal, like AOC says. It's upon us. As we discussed last week, it's not some theoretical thing. It's on us right now. Well, I mean, the, the fires in California are like a season now. Like, that's a yearly thing. Like, that shouldn't be happening. You know, and what, what was Trump's suggestion? Let's just sweep it up. Let's, let's do a better job sweeping the forest. There was no plan in actually trying to address these things. It's just bitching and kicking the can further down the road. No, it is. And people can't afford to move. California is a great example. There's communities that have been burnt out. The one he visited was like Paradise, California or something it was called when he went there last summer or the summer before last. And, you know, a lot of those people are still living on those lots with burned down trees and stuff because they couldn't afford to go somewhere else. And that those are going to be the first victims of what happens to our world in this climate crisis. And this thing has all been perpetuated by the people who benefited from exploiting the earth. Oil companies, petrochemical companies. I got into a debate yesterday, not even a debate. People don't even know where they get their information from, kind of. But the term climate change came out of focus groups. You know, Frank Lutz had a focus group in the two early 2000s. And he said, Republicans really prefer this term over global warming because it's a lot less offensive, right? It sounds kind of mild and natural. And they basically, the Bush White House wanted to use that term, you know, and who was running the Bush White House? Dick Cheney, right? An mm -hmm. oil man, right? And they basically told all the scientific agencies and governmental agencies that were studying the planet and our weather extremes, you got to adopt this new term, climate change. And those agencies were able to justify it, including the UN, because they're like, well, it does encompass the extremes of weather, the fact that it gets really cold in the winter and stuff, you know. So they were able to sort of make scientific rationale to make them feel better. But the bottom line is it's oil companies that wanted you to say climate change. And there was a failure in the Kyoto Protocol. It fell apart. This is previous to Bush. You know, this was Al Gore's kind of thing. So they were like, OK, well, maybe if we play nice with the oil industry, we'll be able to research this. You know, we'll be more effective if we compromise. And now it's adopted. You know, now I have people that consider themselves liberal woke folks like, no, you know, it's not. It's climate change. That's the term. Stop saying global warming. <laughs> and, and Trump muddied the waters further because and a lot of people now 
don't even know why they object to it, but they're like, no, it's been debunked because Trump came along and said, oh, they changed the name to climate change because global warming didn't work because now it's really cold in the winter. <laughs> if you remember, he was like, why is yeah. it so cold? You know, but here's the bottom line on this for my listeners and your listeners, Jimmy. The reason we're having this extreme weather is because we've heated our atmosphere up to a critical point because of burning carbon fuel, burning gasoline and oil. That's heating the atmosphere. It's causing all these problems from the polar ice caps melting to the subways flooding. And until we really address that, until we become a nation that doesn't drive jacked up pickup trucks and leave them idling in front of a store for a half an hour because you like to have the AC on when you get back in, until we deal with that stuff and find a personal responsibility and not be afraid to tell people to start doing this stuff, you know, nobody tells anybody to stop idling in New York City. You'll see these big construction trucks and delivery trucks sitting outside of restaurants idling for like a half an hour. The law in New York City is it's illegal to idle over three minutes. In New York State, it's illegal to idle over five minutes. And nobody enforces this stuff. We've come to accept the poisoning of our planet and the people that are doing it is some, somehow it's rude to call them out on that or we don't want a conflict. I guarantee you whatever conflict you have telling somebody to turn off their pickup truck will pale in comparison to the next Hurricane Sandy that bears down on your ass, right? Your, your house flooding is going to be a lot worse than maybe having some words with a dude in a pickup truck. And I get in Texas, you might not do that because they'll shoot you and they'll be allowed to do it with the governor's new legislation. But on that, I'll hand it over to you, Jimmy. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that you even have a focus group on something, we should all, as human beings, we should all relate to the fact that the planet's getting warmer. It's harder for us to even live as a functioning organism in an environment like this. But when you placate to the oil companies, that opens the door for a Scott Pruitt later on to run the EPA. You let one thing go, okay, they're going to push the limit a little bit further. And we're idiocracy right now. Like we had a reality TV star running our government for a while. And how did that go? 74 million people wanted another round of that shit. Yeah, exactly. That's so well said, Jimmy, because, you know, when when Bush and those guys decided that they wanted to go with climate change as a term, it was the EPA that was the first agency to change their wording. And they went through the website and changed all the reference to global warming to climate change. And climate change, you know, in all fairness, is the larger scientific term. But that's not why it was adopted. It was adopted because global warming sounds scary. Okay. The you know, white people. And we don't right. want to make white people uncomfortable. Well, or, or oil companies, because it points back to the cause of this thing. The cause of why are you warming it up? Because you're heating the planet up. What's heating the planet up? Exhaust fuel like a thousand million cattle for your cheeseburgers, all these big industry things. So let's do climate change. And climate change made it seem like not as much of a pressing matter. And what? We've lost 20 years and now it's on us. You know, imagine if I said the other day, imagine instead of fighting a war in Iraq for 20 years, we'd been fighting global warming because we didn't accomplish anything in that war. I understand to make the case that we had to go in there in the months after 9-11. But what have we done beyond those first couple of months? Right. And it's not like we went in there and got Osama bin Laden and dragged him out. Right. It was the next administration 10 years later that got, you know, because Bush and those guys didn't want to get their boogeyman. He was the reason they could set up these huge bases in Iraq and Afghanistan and oil companies could make even more money. You think we use a lot of energy in this country? You should see what we use in our military. You know, they dump fuel on Navy jets before they land back on the aircraft carrier so they can fill it up again. The whole military is practically a grift for oil companies and stuff. And we didn't do anything. We're leaving in disgrace, basically. And that's not to say the people didn't serve with honor. My cousin was there, but it wasn't we didn't accomplish anything. We're handing the keys over to the Taliban. You know, we left last Friday in the middle of the night. We didn't even tell them we were leaving Bagram Air Force Base. And we turned off the lights a half an hour after we left. And the looters came in and took all of our bullets and all of our Gatorade and all of the crap we left behind, you know, and not just crap like the, the forerunners and all the equipment. So Afghanistan will never be more dangerous than it is now. Right. And, and now we're just having this debate, like, are we going to get these people out of there that helped us, the translators and stuff? 
We're not gonna. You know, Maddow played a clip I saw the other night of after Vietnam, a town in Pennsylvania was welcoming refugees, right? And the governor of Pennsylvania was out there. This is 1975. And they had the local marching band on the runway at the airport. And the town was there to greet these refugees with open arms. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, my country has changed so much. That is unimaginable now. No governor, Democrat or Republican would be welcoming refugees into their state openly on TV with marching bands because their opponent would use it against them in the next campaign commercial. And it's sad that we've gone in that other direction. In 45 years, we've lost such a sense of our humanity that it's unthinkable now. And now we're having a debate if we're even going to like fly them to Guam before they get slaughtered. It's sad, man. We haven't we haven't gone in the right direction. We haven't matured because of things like we open the show with, because of messaging. The Democrats always sort of cede to the Republicans in a way like, well, let's compromise and we'll get more done. They're not trying to compromise. They're trying to play you and scam you, and they're not going to do it anyway. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the biggest obstructors to progress over the last 30 years has been Mitch McConnell. You know, even when we have the advantage in the Senate, it's pulling teeth to get anything accomplished. And and you mentioned the United States military leaving Afghanistan. You know, we're doing Afghanistan like the Colts did Baltimore. You know, right in the middle of the night, we're getting on the Mayflower truck and we're driving to Indy to build a better pasture, you know, for our football team. So, I mean, it's a crappy situation. I hate to use that analogy, but that's what happened. You know, in the middle of the night, they left Baltimore to Indy. That's exactly what we're doing to Afghanistan, man. Man, well said, brother. And I was down there when that happened. I lived in Crofton, Maryland, you know, which is. Oh, did you? Yeah, when that I was a kid when that happened. I don't remember exactly, but I was, you know, school age, elementary. And they still had the marching band for the Colts, like in the parking lot for six months, hoping they would come back. Look, there's dudes in Baltimore that still haven't gotten over that. You know, you walk into a bar in Phelps Point, there's guys that'll still talk your ear off. They're mad. I mean, obviously, (laughs) they got the Ravens now. And anybody listening in the Baltimore area, I'll be in Annapolis, Maryland, at the Rams Head Tavern doing a show on September 17th. So come out. I've been doing some press in the Maryland area. But, um, you know, I mean, that's a great example. It's like sneaking out in the middle of the night. It's like you don't want to pay for your rent. You know you're not getting your security deposit back. So you just slink out. And that's not who we are, or it's it's at least not who we think we are. And it's certainly not who we want to be. It's not the ideals that we pretend to live up to and that some of us try to live up to. And it's definitely not a way to honor all the sacrifice that our brave soldiers have given over there. I, I can't even imagine what it would be like if I had served, you know, and I lost my buddies on some hill in Afghanistan and just why I'd have to turn off the news for the next couple of weeks because I'd be like, what was it for? And you knew it really wasn't for anything anyway. Wars of attrition never are. You're not going to win a guerrilla, you know, a war where the other side is basically entrenched into the countryside because they're not going anywhere. That's why Russia couldn't win in Afghanistan, like the British, like you're not going to win. They're not, they got nowhere to go. So they're going to keep fighting you. And it doesn't matter how big your army is, you can't win against an entrenched population. So you really got to think about while you're there. And we should have learned that lesson in Vietnam. And clearly we didn't. I don't want to keep going off on war, but slinking out in the middle of the night, it's like, it's not cool, man. Well, I think if you watch Vice on Hulu, I think it's still there. It wasn't like the United States had a large coalition for a long time. You know, within a matter of a few months, everyone else was like, there's nothing here. There's no reason to be here. They were looking for WMDs, never found any. You know, the rest of the world kind of got it together. Like, there's nothing here. But we knew it was about profit. And in the end, it was like uh, Halliburton's stock price was up like 500% or something. So Dick Cheney clearly... Uh, was able to capitalize on his position uh, and used it in policy, you know? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And then we discussed that last week, you know, now his own daughter is too conservative and and sort of straight laced for what the Republican Party has become. And they've gone crazy. You know, this week is another instance of this. You know, Trump is suing social media companies, right? Literally the things that got him elected. Okay. There's two things that made Trump president. Okay. The Apprentice and Facebook. Okay, without those things, he was just a local kind of con man. 
Sure, he had a national footprint because of his book, which was a work of fiction. You know, the art of the <laughs> deal. The guy wasn't a billionaire. He was somebody who got handed money by his father. He lost it. Then he opened casinos. He lost that money. Then his dad died and he got a huge inheritance and he forced his other siblings to sell off his father's company. Okay. And got like $700 million, lost that, was broke again. <laughs> NBC gave him a contract. Okay. He had a TV show. That was his first legitimate paycheck where he actually showed up to work and he barely showed up to work, you know, but he'd show up an hour a day, snort a Adderall, shit himself, Keith Schiller, bring him off set, come back on, pretend like he was making a decision about firing somebody, grab some poor contestants, ass, get back in his limo and go back to Trump Tower. Right. But that was his paycheck. You know, that was his gig for 12 seasons. You know, it was on a lot longer than people think. And obviously, Mark Burnett got the idea to do it from the Russians. Mark wanted to go, you know, went to Putin and wanted to do a reality series on the Mir space station. And they were like, no, you need to do it on our boy Trump in New York. <laughs> right? right. So there was strategic interest in whitewashing Trump's image and giving him the image of a billionaire to sort of middle red state America, to Fox News America, to NASCAR America, to Jimmy's America folks, right? Yeah. Jimmy knows yeah. this America better than I do, but I've toured in it. So so that rehabilitated his image and made people think he's a billionaire because you heard all of his followers in the 16 campaign and they're like, he's a billionaire married to a supermodel. Nope. He married an escort. She wasn't a supermodel by any stretch of the, she wasn't even a model. She was an escort. And then Facebook, Right. And I've explained a bunch how Facebook put him in power is basically Jared was able to talk to his buddies that he that he went to college with at Harvard, who are now out in Palo Alto working at Facebook and stuff, learned how to micro target people and figured out, all right, you know, we could actually like win this thing if we swing these districts, you know, these sort of blue collar areas that had voted for Obama in the past, but culturally were more into a guy like Trump, i.e., suburban and rural right. white women, non-college educated white males. So dudes that had voted for Obama, but also had a pickup truck and a gun and a couple of Kid Rock CDs. Like they were able to find out these people and you only needed to swing 77,000 of them in these districts, you know, in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Ohio and stuff. And it worked, right? It, it worked. So social media made the guy and now he's like biting the hand that feeds it, which is what Trump has always done. He turns on everybody eventually, including his own family. And that's what's next. You know, next it's going to he's going to be peeling off the kids. They'll become sacrificial lambs to the wolves of the AG's department. But I, I honestly, I don't even think they're going to go after him that hard. You know, I think Weisselberg is going to not flip. He'll take a sentence. It'll be like a year or two in federal prison and the whole thing will be done. Trump will pay a bunch of fines. Sure, his creditors will default on him. But what the hell does he care? He's been bankrupt six times, you know? <laughs> Yeah, he's no he's no stranger to that. One thing that you brought up that's really interesting. Do you think the kids will because they've got stuff on their father? I'm sure you know that that they're aware of. Do you think they'll pull some kind of miracle and like just spill what they've got on their dad by chance just to screw him in the end as a revenge thing? I feel like they might. Yeah, they definitely could. No, that's a, it's a it's a snake pit. You know, the family is a den of vipers. They all hate <laughs> each other behind the scenes. They look, you know, they make the Lannisters look like a nice family. <laughs> I'm telling you, dude, they don't like each other. And of course they would. Vonky more than anybody else, because she's got the secrets. She's got a victim card to play that she hasn't played yet that'll engender a lot of sympathy, somewhat well-placed. You know, he, he obviously sexualized her at a young age. I'm not saying he did anything, but he certainly made it very inappropriate with her, you know, and he certainly exploited her in a way that most people would not exploit their 10 to 14 year old child. And by the time mm -hmm. she was 16, she was hosting his beauty pageants and, you know, Miss Teen USA and all this kind of stuff. So if anybody has the real dirt on daddy, it's Vonky. Don <laughs> Jr. hated him, right? I mean, he punched right. Don Jr. in the face when he was at Penn. Like, nobody hated him more than Don Jr. And Don tried to get away from the family. He moved out to Colorado and, like, was a bartender at a ski resort and just did coke all the time. And he tried to join the Marines, and his dad said he would disown him if he joined the military. Because the other thing is, Trump and those guys, they think military people are suckers. You know, it mm. came out this week that when John Kelly was with Trump in Paris a couple of years ago for the memorial, uh, the World War One memorial, 
John Kelly is sort of sitting in the hotel in Paris. And this is the famous time where Trump didn't go to the cemetery because it was raining and he didn't want his hair to get wet. And he made up an excuse that like his security team wouldn't let him go because it was just too dangerous to travel. But somehow Macron and everybody else was able to get to the, you know, is the Battle of Baloo. So Trump's sort of having this conversation with John Kelly and he goes, you know, Hitler was a pretty good dude. You know, he did a lot of good stuff, you know, for, for Germany in the 30s. Kelly's like, dude, you can't say that. <laughs> like, Don't ever say that. Kelly, who has no backbone, let's be real. And that moment gets a little bit of backbone and, and says, you can't say that. And Trump won't take it. He's like, nope, I, I believe it. You know, Hitler was a good dude because Trump loves the Nazi. OK, his family's fucking Nazis. You know, they're Nazis. Let's be real. So anyway, Kelly, the same guy who's standing next to Trump at Arlington and Kelly's uh -huh. son is buried there because he was a soldier who died. And Trump's like, I don't get it. What was in it for them? Like, can you imagine being a general and having a pompous like idiot like Trump standing there in his diapers uh -huh. telling you like what was in it? Like, how did Kelly not turn and like clock the guy? You know, and I know <laughs> Kelly was into locking up kids in cages because he owned a company that profited from that. And he's from Boston and probably a huge rate. He is a racist, let's be honest. But even a racist, there should be some honor among thieves, you know, and there right. isn't. And I'm only making this point because like Trump and those guys don't respect the military and nobody degraded the military more while he was president than Trump. And he made fools out of these guys. And Kelly, you know, it just came out this week because it's in a book. And so there's no honor in that for Kelly. He should have resigned then. He quietly resigned in 19 and just left, you know, but he should have been like, hey, this guy likes Hitler. No, 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 no. I'm out of here. You know, maybe, well, you know, go. It's it's similar to uh, the story that came out this week that Mike Pence snarled at Trump and like had a had, had an outburst, you know, during a meeting. Pence is an asshole, but he's never snarled in his life, okay? He's an evangelical Christian. He'll do it subtly, okay? And for people that don't know, before he ran for Congress, he was a radio host here in Indianapolis. And one of my college professors worked with him when he was a host. He didn't miss anything if he didn't tune into the show. He pretty much would read the newspaper and do his best Rush Limbaugh impression. And no, you know that I'm your producer. I would never leave a show right in the middle of it. But there was a day at the station where his producer just up and left the studio and is like, run your own damn board, you know? And eventually that producer was fired and eventually Pence left the show because he was running for Congress. But Mike Pence is about attention. He's about getting his message out the way that he says it because he loves to hear, hear himself talk. Him and Trump are cut from the same cloth in, in that way. <laughs> yeah, they all are. And that's a great story, Jimmy. What, what did the guy, what, what made the engineer walk off the board? He would just bombard him every day. And and sometimes you have that relationship with a host because if you have to fill three hours, like that's difficult, especially for someone that's not, that doesn't have a, a broadcasting background. So it can get heated, yeah. but you shake hands and you say, good show. The producer couldn't take it anymore. And I, I don't blame him. You know, Mike, Mike's got a multi-million dollar home. He can relax in. That's about 20 minutes outside of a PGA level golf course in Indy. So he's doing just fine. <laughs> Oh my God, that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, and they're all they're all grifters. You know, it came out this morning as a story I've been following a long time. You know, Mike Pompeo, Secretary Fatback, as I like to call him. <laughs> <laughs> like we all knew he was grifting with these things he called the Madison dinners, right? So when he was a State Department, you know, and he was the Secretary of State, he he and his wife would have these parties at the State Department, and the parties only existed for his donors. So he'd hot he'd bring all these people that he was hoping that would contribute to his presidential campaign, which he hopes to launch, you know, next year. And he would invite them to DC and they'd have these parties in the state department in foggy bottom, which is where it is in DC. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and they would buy gifts for these people. Like he'd spend $10,000 on embossed pens and little journals that he'd give out to these people. Right. But when he was like billing all this stuff through the state department, they would change the item numbers in the accounting ledgers. And they'd be like, something, you know, Mike Pence dinner on international affairs, right? They mm. would call them Madison dinners and the dinners had themes like they'd have Mardi Gras night and they'd go to Party City and get a bunch of beads and stuff. I'm not making any of this up, you know, oh, they'd have canopies and hors d'oeuvres and he'd make State Department employees like serve hors d'oeuvres and stuff, really humiliating stuff, right? But he, he tried to hide this from Congress because they look over the books, you know, they see what money you're spending. And it came out today that the fund that 
he was using for this was part of a State Department emergency fund that was used like if there's a really big international emergency and you have to fly your family, like my family got flown out of Vietnam in 1963, right? When President Dien went down and like the scene changed and they said, get all the national, you know, get all the diplomats' families out of there ASAP. And my dad remembers sitting on a plane with his little brother sitting on my grandma's lap and watching the tanks come down the runway in Vietnam, you know, Mm -hmm. and flew out. So it's a fun for stuff like that, you know, for emergencies, for diplomatic personnel. Pompeo is using it for his private parties and lying about it. You know, literally, it's illegal to change your ledger. You know, it's like if you're a business traveler and you hand in your receipts and you spent $1,400 in a strip club and you try to pass it off. (laughs) you know, as something else. And he knows he's not going to get busted on that. My point is he knows he won't get busted because the GOP won't call him on it. When Hillary Clinton was secretary of state, they had 10 hearings into Benghazi, 10. They dragged it out for two years to use it as a political cudgel on her. Mike Pompeo was a senator then, and he sat on those hearings. He participated on that. Now he gets the job as secretary of state and he's literally stealing taxpayers dollars to fund his own political career after he leaves his appointed office as secretary of state. And they won't do a thing about it. And they've all done that. As we talked about last week, your Ryan Zinkies, your Scott Pruitt's, your Ben Carson's. It was a grifter's palooza. And Trump knew that, you know, when when Trump got elected, it was like, get the most venal men you can find, men that are given to corruption, because he knew they wouldn't be able to resist sticking their hands in the cookie jar, and then he could use it against them. Because that's what Mm -hmm. Trump likes to do. He wants to own people. You know, he wants everybody to come, everybody to snort some cocaine. You know, I don't mean come, (laughs) you know, everybody to go in the bedroom with the prostitute. And then think you're all friends, but then he's going to use that compromise against you. And that's the that's the GOP now because they write their own history. They're rewriting Texas history as we speak. They're trying voter suppression laws again. They called an emergency session yesterday. Governor Abbott trying to keep people from voting. You know, one one of the major concerns that I have, because we, we've talked about General Milley on this show and the fabulous answer he gave about critical uh, race theory and why it's important to be knowledgeable about that sort of thing, to be educated on that sort of thing. And we've talked about the GOP being a cult before and that it's a cult of personality based on Trump. What's really concerning to me and what's new dangerous territory, people are getting in trouble from the GOP for having different thoughts than them. Even if they have the same political ideology, different thoughts, just different thinking is now taboo in GOP. Like that's that's an extreme step we've taken toward fascism that I, we can't we have to acknowledge that every week. Well, and it comes from fascism. It comes from Stalinism. OK, Stalin attacked and starved Ukraine. Right. The people of Ukraine. He had all these draconian things on them where he would take all their grain. He would even take the seed corn. You know, he starved and murdered like millions of people. And then they rewrote the history. It's called memory laws. And that's what the you know, the New York Times did a great piece on it the other day. And that's what we're doing in this country. You know, that's what the Republicans are trying to do. They're trying to cover up crimes against humanity and rewrite history. Slavery was a crime against humanity. It's almost the the defining crime against humanity. It's certainly our original sin as a nation, and it's certainly nothing we will ever get past until we fully acknowledge and begin to make reparations. I'm in recovery, okay? I don't talk about this, but when you get sober, the first thing you do is you write basically down a list of all the fucked up things you've done, and then you go make amends. And it's not just like, hey, man, I'm sorry I did that. It goes, how can I make it right? You know, if you owe somebody money, you go try to pay them back because it clears your conscience. It admits that you've done wrong things and that you were living the wrong way and you want to make it right. And then you get to sleep at night when you've done that because you're not carrying around that shame. But we're still carrying around this shame as a nation, you know, and we have men and women that want to pretend like it never happened. And those people are on the warpath now. And and the critical race theory has given them that sort of like banner to fly. That's why Marjorie Taylor Greene and all these idiots are are speaking out against it, because they want to pretend. Well, first of all, they want to switch out white supremacy 
for real history. They sort of like slavery. That's the wink and the nod is like, hey, this wasn't a bad thing. That's what make America great again was like, we're going to have a segregated society where the mediocre white man rules everything, where somebody like Donald Trump and his idiot ilk can run the country, where a dude named like Matt Morgan Caulfield or whatever this kid is, this 25 year old college dropout who literally like lied about the accident he was in, did a Mm -hmm. false lawsuit against the company, gets a Dodge Charger, enrolls in college and starts sexually assaulting his classmates and doesn't make it a semester. And a (laughs) hundred of them sign a petition saying this guy should not be in Congress. This kid is an idiot, right? And what happens? He goes to Congress and he gets a blue check on Twitter as soon as he announces his run, which is the other really dangerous thing because Twitter has always given authenticity to these people. Marjorie Taylor Greene was a Q-tuber. You know what that is? That's somebody who gets on YouTube and talks about QAnon. That's how she came to prominence. And then she's like, hey, I'm going to run for Congress because she got the QAnon people to chase the other guy out of North Georgia where she didn't even live. So then he didn't have an opponent and she went and registered for Congress up there. And all of a sudden she gets a blue check and she gets elected. Trump brings her on stage. She's a racist, works for me. You know, she might kind of look like a dude, but Trump was able to look past that. They brought her up on stage. And boom, now she's a sitting congressman. And she, on uh, the other day was the anniversary of the attacks. It was January 6th, was a six month anniversary. On that very day, she tweeted out that Biden didn't win the election, that it was legitimate, that the votes were stolen from Trump in the state of Georgia. Now she's the congressman from there with a blue check. Okay. You and I laugh at that. We know it's batshit crazy, but kids don't in Georgia. Parents and suburban people that aren't that intellectually hip and don't read this stuff and believe Fox News is telling them the truth because they see a bunch of American flags on the Chiron and they don't realize it's owned by an Australian guy who hates America, you know, (laughs) who's trying to destroy it. The only thing Murdoch likes about America is six foot tall blonde women. Okay, (laughs) that's the only resource he wants to extract besides the dollars of dumb people. Yeah, I mean, if there's anything more clear about Trump, he clearly doesn't like uh, America. If he did, he would try to marry one every once in a while. It's just crazy. And, you know, they, they continue to watch this content knowing that it's ignorant and that they're not learning anything. It's just an effort to keep white people distracted from what's really going on. You know, they just throw wrenches into stuff so that they buy more time. We've talked about that before. It's all about extending the grift and buying more time. Right, and time is not on our side because when it gets past a certain point, it's like global warming. We just lost 20 years in really taking that fight seriously. Had Al Gore been the president 20 years ago, and he was definitely elected in Florida, right? But we had a Supreme Court that was like, nah, just give it to Bush. Yeah, I mean, yeah. By, conservative court, you know, you had freaking Clarence Thomas and stuff and Scalia like, no, nope, we're going to side with Bush in Bush v. Gore. And and Gore was enough of a patriot. He'd already been vice president. He was like, all right, I'll step aside for the good of the nation because he saw what, what was doing to us. And a lot of that was manufactured. You know, it was the Koch brothers that were paying for the Brooks Brothers riots, as they called them. That was the first kind of precursor of MAGAism was like paid agitators going down and trying to disrupt the counting process in Miami-Dade County. And it worked because it made all the headlines and it put a bunch of fear into the American psyche. And more importantly, it put fear into the stock market. So people got on the phone that really count and really call the shots, the real ballers and shot shot callers of this country, you know, which aren't (laughs) the politicians. It's the Carl Icons, you know, and the Larry Finks and the guys that control these big hedge funds. They get on the phone and they say, hey, dude, you guys better do something about this. You know, it's this is December now. Make a decision. So the Supreme Court's like, let's give it to Bush. A lot more money to be made with Dick Cheney as basically president than Al Gore. And then what happens? A year into the thing, we're in two wars that went on for 20 years and bazillions of dollars were made for oil companies and we lose 20 years of fighting climate change. And we degrade the American consciousness to the point that now it's not even like, forget about getting half the country to conserve energy and recycle. You can't even get them to wear a mask, right? Yeah. You know, they're driving pickup trucks that belong on the battlefield, 20 feet in the air, going down the highway, getting 10 miles a gallon. You should be driving cars that get 60 miles a gallon. You know, you should be driving tiny little cars like they do in Europe. 
you know, where they've been paying six bucks a gallon for 30 years. You know, it's not your God-given right to pay a dollar sixty a gallon of gas. Well, and when I was in elementary school, I can remember when the original Hummer came out, okay? Like, and these are straight out of the factory, could roll into a battlefield at any time, right? I think that on the highway, it got like five miles a gallon, the original Hummer. What's the point of that? That's just a carbon box traveling down the road at that point. You can't even carry anything that you'd want to carry in a Humvee. It defeats the purpose. I know, but it's it, it was. I remember that. I remember when it came out. <laughs> it was in my early twenties, and uh, a friend of mine, a journalist, did a piece on them. And that was that was again. It was a harbinger of things to come because then you had the toxic masculinity and the militarized industry of the two wars post 9-11. Cause you had all this surplus equipment. So then they started giving it to local police departments. All of a sudden local police departments had the accoutrements of battlefield missions. They're driving into your neighborhood in Milwaukee now in a big armored vehicle. And the dudes have, you know, helmets and flak jackets and big long rifles and stuff. That was all surplus material from our army, from our, our military services. They had extra and they're like, what should we do with it? Well, give it to the police departments at home. <laughs> no, don't do that. The police departments are not a military occupying force, but they became that. And if you get that stuff, you want to use it. Oh, we're going to do a drug raid tonight. We think there's a drug dealer in this condo over here. And it's a nurse. You know, right. it's Brianna Taylor. And we still don't have justice for her because these guys get jacked up on all this insanity. And 9-11 and was part of that. You know, the people that were not 9-11, the incident, but the reaction to 9-11, the conservative, jingoistic, we put a boot in their ass. That's what Americans do. You know, all this bullshit that made my skin <laughs> crawl. And 9-11 happened in my neighborhood, bro. It happened to my friends. I smelled the bodies burning for months. My friends worked on the pit and died of cancer. My friends died that morning. It was as local a story as you could get. It had nothing to do with some jackass down in Nashville making a video and all this other crap. But it's easy to manipulate people with that stuff. And then it quickly became big business. And all of a sudden, you could have a pickup truck like that at home. And now by Trump years, you know, and Trump wasn't even in New York City in 9-11. Everyone knows that he called up the radio stations and stuff and said, now I have the tallest building. He was down at Mar-a-Lago with another couple. Okay, he wasn't even in the town and he's lied about it. At one point when he was president, he said he went and worked on the pit. I was down there helping the first. No, you weren't. And none of your kids were down there. You never saw an Ivanka Trump down there handing out water. My friends were down there. I, I was up in Woodstock for the first couple of days, and then I, was, I wasn't down there. I was on the Upper East Side, but, uh, and I've told those stories. I lived across from Rudy Giuliani, and for months after, he would come home every night with a mask on his face, even though he was telling everybody else the air was safe to breathe. And it clearly wasn't, because it would come up the East River at night, and it's a million computers burning, and a million office chairs, you know, and a million pieces of plastic, and asbestos, because the buildings were built in the seven, early 70s. Like... It was as much of a toxic waste dump as you could imagine. And Giuliani's like, nope, it's all good. Go back to work. Okay to send the ML, open up the elementary school across the street. You know what I'm saying? And I yeah. mean, they're all complicit in it. They don't care. And I think that, you know, I, I started, I don't know if you watch this show. It's on uh, Hulu, if anyone's interested. Rescue Me. It's got Dennis Leary. He wrote it. Uh, it's about the daily lives of firefighters. And it takes place right after 9-11. And, you know, it talks about the daily lives and struggles of what they do day to day. And there's a character on there that he has to take a second job as like a bartender to help pay for his wife's medical care. A firefighter shouldn't have to do that, especially after being involved in something like 9-11. But our government benefited from the attackers being from the Middle East. It's much easier to profile somebody that's got a turban on than a white guy. That's what's scary about things now. You know, how many folks, like we said last week, how many folks from January 6th served on the battlefield for the United States. All of those guys are trained to kill people. That's what soldiers do at the end of the day. It might be in the name of freedom, like they say in Fox News, but that's what they are trained to do. And they, they're carrying weapons that are designed to kill people. Like that's, that's just a fact. They're yep. not carrying around pistols. Exactly. And you remember when we did a special episode with our friend Nick, my buddy Nick, who's my lifelong friend, who was an NYPD cop. And he worked on the pit and got this rare form of like lung cancer, not 
he's still alive. It's it's some weird thing right. and he had to retire with disability and stuff. But he was on the pit and he was a cop, you know, on the as a beat cop and then he was like on a task force and stuff. He was a decorated police officer. And uh, he told you, he he saw the change after 9-11 because we were roommates in 89, right? And he became a cop probably in 90, 90, 91, 92. And he told us on the show, he said, look, a lot of these guys are coming from the battlefield with PTSD. You know, they're not in the community. They're, they're seeing it as an aggressor. You know, they're reacting the way, uh, you know, you would on the battlefield. Basically shoot first and ask questions later, you know, which is unfortunately how a lot of that stuff goes down in war. I'm not going to get into all that, but in those wars, crimes were basically celebrated. You know, you brought in Blackwater and Eric Prince and all these mercenaries and they would slaughter a bunch of people, you know, and they kind of got in trouble. And then Trump gave along and pardoned them all and gave them medals. And now Eric Prince is basically running our country behind Mm -hmm. the scenes. He's about the most dangerous person on this planet. And he was given all the access and all the money during the Trump administration. He was literally hired to be an operative and get dirt on Trump's opponents. Okay. He had a ranch in Wyoming where he was training like ex like Israeli Mossad agents and ex British special forces guys to ingratiate themselves amongst amongst Democratic candidates and their staff and try to like disable their campaigns. Okay. That's as paramilitary guy as you could get. And his sister happened to be hired to dismantle the education department, Betsy DeVos. And they're both Amway heirs. So they're both billionaires to begin with. And I guarantee you they got a hand in what went down in Haiti the other night. Talk about a nation where the U.S. has never done right by the place. Okay. And my grandma and grandpa, step-grandpa built schools in Haiti, spent a ton of time in Haiti. They're heartbroken now. They were down in Haiti a ton. And we have a lot of family friends from Haiti. I've never been there. I've done a lot of benefits. I know Wyclef, you know, after the big hurricane, we did a big benefit in New York that George Clooney put together and uh, they never recovered. Haiti was never rebuilt after that hurricane, which was well over 10 years ago, probably 2009, 2010 or something. It never recovered. And now they're basically leaderless and some kind of death squad came from outside of Haiti and assassinated their president. So... My point in all this is, you know, we've always messed in the affairs of other nations. It's been a little bit more on the DL in times past. You know, I talk about Iran-Contra and stuff. You know, that stuff makes probably what went down during the Trump administration look like child's play. You know, we have no idea what Eric Prince was up to in the Seychelles before the 2016 election. But he was over there meeting with Russians. And the Russians are more than anybody are pulling the strings of Trump. And now they're pulling the strings of the entire GOP. Okay. We just talked about memory laws. We just talked about Texas now making it illegal to teach what really went down at the Alamo. And it wasn't a bunch of brave Texans fighting off the aggressive Mexicans. It was a war to continue to have slavery. Slavery is built into the Texas constitution, you know, their state independent constitution, and you're not even allowed to mention it in Texas. You're not allowed to tell the people truth, but you're allowed to carry a gun without a permit. Somebody walked into a bar in Texas yesterday with a handgun, walked up to a booth and shot two people dead and shot himself. Okay. That's horrific. Okay, and the governor's not going to do anything about that. He's making it as easy as possible to do that as many times as you want. Yeah, and here's my here's my problem with something that horrific. Obviously, the the victims are the the biggest victims in that. It's the ones that were shot. But think about being in a bar like that and seeing something like that go down. I would be scarred the rest of my life if I saw that happen in real you know and like i'll mention i mentioned andrew luck and how he was like emotionally broken when he retired what what we're going through is similar to what andrew luck went through after his first few years it's like okay i'll take a few hits for the team and we'll still win after a while you get traumatized to the point that you're like no i I don't want to do this anymore and i think that's you know we're broken as a people in america and it's okay we if we admit it that's how you fix things is admitting there's a problem (laughs) 
Absolutely. It's like I was saying in recovery, you make a list, you do a four step and a fifth step, you know, you, you figure out what your defects of character are and how you remove them. And we need to do that as a nation, yeah. you know, and one of our defects of character is an addiction to guns and violence and feeling like it's your constitutional right to have an AR-15 and 15 rounds of ammo or 15 ammo cases or something. You know, on the 4th of July, somebody was staying in a hotel in Chicago those hotel rooms weren't getting cleaned often because of COVID, okay? But by the grace of God, a cleaning person let herself into this hotel room to clean it. And she noticed that next to the window was a big AR-15 long rifle, Mm. like on a stand, loaded, also with a handgun and five, you know, cases, magazines of ammunition, right? Mm -hmm. It was facing down onto a park, where they were going to have a 4th of July celebration. So she tells, you know, her boss and they come in and take the guns and they arrest the guy. He got out of jail two days ago on a thousand dollar bond and got to go back to Wisconsin. Okay. That guy was clearly going to be an active shooter. You know, he was clearly going to assassinate a bunch of people on the 4th of July. You know, he's a white guy. He was probably a QAnon Trumper or whatever he was. He was some kind of idiot, you know, who had a gun set up looking out the hotel room, like in Vegas. And my friends were there. I had a friend on the stage when that went down in Vegas. I had other Mm -hmm. friends that were hiding for hours that thought they were going to die. I talked to him when it was going down. I've had other friends in Bataclan. You know, my friend Helen had her boyfriend die in her arms. He was the merch guy. He sold the t-shirts for Eagles of Death Metal. She sat there for five hours on the floor with terrorists walking around above her with guns, trying to give her boyfriend CPR and he died in her arms. She is not the same. Okay. You mentioned you wouldn't be the same after seeing that. She was in one of the worst mass shootings that Paris ever saw, if not the worst. Okay. And the trauma, I was there for her. I was doing a gig with Justin Bieber when it happened in New York, the Nickelodeon show, but it's Nickelodeon award show thing. But um, the trauma that went down in this person. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still friends. Like she, every band who went through Paris knew her. She ran the catering company that caters all the concerts and stuff. Somebody beloved in the touring industry in Europe. She would tell me these stories. She'd be like, no, I thought I was going to die. You know, these guys, because they were held hostage. Most people don't realize they went in and killed like a hundred people and then kept the building. You know, they stood there. Can you imagine that terror? You don't recover from that. Mm -mm. Okay. So can you imagine what would have gone down? in this country, if this guy had gotten away, you know, if this maid or cleaning person hadn't let herself into this hotel room? I think the biggest thing that I would say, especially to President Biden, since he's now in charge of things, because I saw this post that they were memorializing the Pulse nightclub shooting. That's all well and good, you know, good that we're memorializing it and remembering it because it should never happen. It's one of the most tragic things that's ever happened. When you go out to a club, you know, especially a guy that's in his mid-20s, like, you're going to have a good time. That's what you anticipate, not to be shot in a a place like that. But my point is, stop memorializing stuff. Stop giving us official holidays. Actually change the fucking gun laws and hold these people accountable. Because if you don't, there's no point to it, man. Jason Aldean was on was on stage as the dude was opening fire and had to run off. We, we don't have any freedom anymore if something like that happens. I know. And now the Republicans, you know, they're running for office as the secretaries of state in all these states because they know they can overturn the elections. So even yeah. if Biden does some kind of, you know, assault weapons ban like Clinton did, they're going to ignore it. As I said last week in Missouri, they make it illegal to enforce gun laws. Guns and racism will be the hills that the Republicans kill us all on. I won't even say <laughs> die on, right? Because they're, 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 they're being taught by the Russians. There's a reason that all those senators went on the 4th of July. You know, Ron Johnson and all these guys went to Russia and Moscow on the 4th of July. They're learning about things like memory laws. They're learning how to change the truth about your country so you can continue to lie to your people and manipulate them and wield incredible power over them. And that's what they use these items like guns for. Guns don't make you safer. There's absolutely no science to back that up. There's never a good guy with a gun running in and stopping everything, right? We had all the Q nut fuckers in, in, in the Congress that day, right? Morgan Caulfield bragged that he had a gun in his wheelchair. Did he do anything with it? 
Did he turn into Roller Rambo all of a sudden? Right? <laughs> Take him out? No. He probably shit himself and got pushed out of there. You know, like uh, people do. If you're not trained, you're not going to do anything that's going to help with a gun. You're just going to make it harder for law enforcement when they show up because they're not going to know who the good guy and the bad guy is. You can't do anything about it. That's why you don't give people assault rifles with like high capacity magazines because you can't protect against that. That's not meant to be in a civilian situation. That's meant to be in a jungle somewhere. Those guns were invented to, to shoot through heavy brush because there's jungles in Southeast Asia and they don't know who they're shooting at. So they just want to be able to take away all the foliage and hopefully get the people behind it that are just trying to protect their homeland and don't know why a bunch of 19 year old Americans are there shooting at them anyway. And neither do the 19 year old Americans, you know, they're just going because somebody patted them on the back and said, Hey, you're not a hippie. Put on this <laughs> flag and go over there and kill people and make the black guy walk in front in case there's a, a landmine, he'll get blown up first, which is what we did in Vietnam. You know, the military was segregated well after World War II. You know, they don't want people to know that, okay? You don't want to know what we're operating with. So it's easier to manipulate people with jingoism and with, you need a gun and you're a good Christian. <laughs> this was founded by Christians. You know, no, it wasn't. The thing that made America great was immigration, okay? Before that, it was a bunch of white dudes who didn't want to work. So they brought enslaved people over there and made them work the fields, reaped incredible amounts of money because there was so much natural resource that they were able to steal from the people they slaughtered the Native Americans that they took the land for from. So then they start cutting down all the trees and shipping it over to Europe because the trees have been growing for 500 years and they're these huge pieces of cherry and maple and oak and all these hardwoods. So they're shipping them back to Europe and making a fortune. And they're like, this is a great way of life. And then they're like, we need more workers. Let's build a railroad. Okay, bring Chinese people over here, but make them build the railroad and then railroad and have no right. Now let's bring the indentured servants. Let's get some Irish and Italians over here to cook and clean for us for a while. But let's make them work off their passage and live in that little shack down the road. And if they start to question us, let's let them know that they're better off than the black folks, you know, and let's right. make them hate the black folks instead of hating us. And that's the same pattern that you see in American society to this day. That's what Tom Cotton is trying to defend. That's why the Republicans are gerrymandering their districts. Little <laughs> Van Crenshaw is not gonna get elected in a fair fight. He's gotta cut out the district all around Dallas and then make a cartoon video of him hopping out of a plane. Where was he on January 6th? He wasn't kicking ass and taking names. He was on the ramp going up the stage to talk with Trump, man. He was on the main ticket that day, wasn't he? He was giving. I don't speeches. think. I, know, I think he was in Texas. I don't think he was. Oh well, I don't. I don't mean to put him there at the events if he wasn't, but he was clearly in support of it before. And you know, we've talked about how like General Milley used to be the Republican avatar for for the GOP. The avatar now for G the GOP is like Rex Quando from uh, Napoleon Dynamite, the guy that wore the hey. USA pants, you know, and about your sensei you know that's the guy <laughs> that's that's the gop you know a, an over characterized deep fried piece of crap that, that's what they are you know at this point and what we've done we've turned the gop into a mcnugget you know we say it's it's a chicken thing but it doesn't look like it doesn't act like it and it's it's not good for us anymore it's poison <laughs> poison and it's poisoning our planet and it's dangerous because it's there's a hundred Trumps now, you know, for once it was, you know, for one four year stretch, it was basically one guy and a bunch of morons that were looking at up at him in awe, you know, <laughs> your little Jim Jordans and your Matt Getz, you know, all these guys that still aren't being held accountable. Jim Jordan is still in a gerrymandered district. Matt Getz has probably got a phone contact list still full of teenage girls. He's still snorting Coke every night, right? He's still not in jail, you know, and everyone's like, well, just they're building a rock solid case do it already arrest the guy i'm sick of hearing about oh we're looking for this other january 6th guy i don't care you've arrested 500 of those guys they're not they're the foot soldiers go get the generals get the guys that really did this but that's not what they're going to let us do there'll be no real january 6th commission okay and then come the next election cycle you're going to have 20 marjorie taylor greens and think you're going to get anything done then you better think again and it'll be too late the environment will be coming down on you. You know, all these things that they paint now as socialism and critical race theory. 
They'll lock this place down and you won't be able to do a damn thing about it. And that's not a very positive sentiment for a comedy show, but that's how I roll, folks. If you come see me live, it's a lot different. Then I'm going to tell you a positive story because you brought it up, Jimmy. We're running out of time here. I'll let you talk in a second. But, you know, you said we need hope and we've gone through this traumatizing time and we were talking about 9-11 a lot. And I had an office at the time that I worked at that was like 40th and Madison and Grand Central Station is the big station where, you know, I would go in and take the subway to the Upper East Side every day after work. And in the months after 9-11, you know, New York was, it was somber to say the least. And you'd walk into a bar or something and no music would be playing. CNN would just be on the TV kind of low and everybody would talk in hushed tones. It was just the Obviously, there was just a pall over the city, right? And in early November, I was walking in the evening. It was about 5.30, 6 o'clock. I was walking into Grand Central. And folks that know, the entrance closest to Lexington Avenue kind of has this big marble hallway and this ramp that goes down to where the subway is. And all of a sudden, I see a crowd gathered, right, around this woman. And people rush over and like something's going on. And they're lowering the woman to the, to the ground. And I hear somebody be like, we need water, you know, and somebody runs and gets water, right? And I see somebody else come over. It's like, I need sutures. Does anybody have sutures? And someone's like, I'm a carpenter. I have this, you know what I mean? It runs up with something. And someone else is like, I need towels. Somebody find clean towels. And somebody else runs to a store and comes back. And at this point, like a big crowd is gathered. And I'm like, what is going on? And someone's like, she's having a baby. And then like somebody who's like an EMT comes up and he's like, she's having it now, folks. And like at this point, there's 150 people and we're all gathered around, you know, and we're all like sending our energy on to this lady, you know, and the little supplies they've needed have all been gathered and we all gasp and hold our breaths and they help her with this child and we all hold our breath. And then this guy holds it up and is like, it's a beautiful boy. And we hear the cry and it echoes through the marble hallway and 200 people started clapping, dude. I'll start crying right now. But like 200 people just started clapping because we couldn't handle another bad thing. As New Yorkers, we all stood there and knew if something had happened to that baby. It would have broken our spirits and it didn't. It lived, you know, and then the the ambulance showed up and they took her out and we're all crying and clapping and stuff. And it was in that moment that I realized sort of we were back as a city, you know, that we turned a corner, that miracles also happen amongst the destruction. And that's the human spirit. That's life going on. That was another blessed baby in this world. And ironically, they were immigrants. You know, I think they they were from Latin America or Mexico or something, which was wonderful, you know, which only made the story better because that's what this country stands for immigrants coming here and providing another generation with safe harbor and letting the community lift you up and give you what you need at the time you need it most and then celebrating in your achievement okay jimmy's gonna cry everybody i'm gonna give you one more thing zayla avant-garde i'm probably saying her name wrong but she's this wonderful young woman girl whatever you call it you know who won the spelling bee she won the script spelling bee last night you know and the moment she wins they give her a big trophy and she does this funny dance like spins around and twirls and you can just see the joy in her you know and then they hand her this trophy and she's holding it and in this moment as all the confetti comes down she's just kind of whimsical and just kind of like grabbing the confetti in her hands you know and she has this satisfied look on her face and it's not one of arrogance it's just one in terms of like i did well you know she was happy with herself and you could see it in her eyes you could see that love in her eyes and you could see that she got the opportunity to achieve something great and that's a wonderful thing and you should want that for everybody's children you know those moments are rare in life And we all need to celebrate them. And her winning that thing is a perfect example. You know, and she's from Louisiana. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? She doesn't look like everybody in Louisiana. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, she was outstanding in in the best way. And I think here's the thing that I would love to change about America. We are almost toxically individualistic. We say, pull each other up by your own bootstraps, you know, and, and all these different things that we've been told throughout our lives. It's okay to ask for help. You're not in this by yourself. Do you think this country was built by individual people trying to get their little piece 
of whatever this country is, it doesn't belong to you or I as much as it belongs to anybody. You know, it's our country. We're trying to build it into something better for everyone. So I know that kind of summarizes what you were saying, but we need to stop with this like, leave me alone hermit mentality, which wasn't helped by the pandemic, but you need people and we can can fix it. And it's gonna be a lot easier if we do it collectively. Absolutely. Isolation is a killer, you know, and and we're a community. It's like I said on one of the early episodes, you look at a fish, he's swimming in the water and you see the sunlight catch it. And then you see a rainbow, you know, appear on the side of the fish. Each one of those scales on the fish is adding a different color that makes up that rainbow. And when the sunlight catches it properly, it's part of this larger organism that's swimming free and reflecting beauty back into the universe. That's what we do as a nation as our best and as a world as our best. The best things about life are the diversity. Nature is interesting because there's a gazillion species. Humanity is interesting because there's a lot of different flavors and things to learn. It's not a threat, it's a blessing. I wanna learn about your culture. I wanna try your food. If you're eating it, it's good, <laughs> you know? It's the same Mm -hmm. way with music, with dance, with everything. People don't do things that don't feel good. Let them teach you about their culture. Let them share it with. It will make you better. It'll make us all better. It'll make you more interesting as a person. Don't hide up on your ranch with a bunch of guns being like angry (laughs) white guy. That ain't going to get you anywhere. So anyway, look, we're out of time, Jimmy. I think we've even gone a little long. So uh, as I said at the top of the show, I'm doing a comedy show on September 16th at the Rams Head in Annapolis, Maryland. Would love your support. You can catch it on noelcastler.com. Links to all the tickets on there. Jimmy's got his own podcast he's going to tell you about right now. Yeah, JBK On Air is the name of the podcast. You can check it out, jbkonair.com. Also, let's go to my Twitter followers. Follow me on Twitter, at jbkonair. There we go, folks. Episode 19 of the Noel Castler podcast is in the books. Be safe and have a good week and stay cool and dry.